So, if you'd like to open up the Bible to Acts chapter 6, please. And read one section and then a little bit of slightly further on. It's not 100% the uh, message for tonight, but it sort of gives us an introduction. So Acts 6, verse 8 to start. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs amongst the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Syrians, Adria, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us all. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. And then um, I've put down 54 to 60 and I haven't put down the chapter, but it's chapter 7, chapter 7, 54 to 60. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. That's Stephen. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopping their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep. What a man who had a face like a face of an angel. Eh? So we're coming now to beginnings of the church, part four. I'm not sure whether there's a part five or not yet, but there might be. So it's the fourth in the series, looking back at the early church and applying that to how the church should look at in our times and our culture. We've looked at how we should be led and fed, for those of you who don't remember what the first three were, how we should worship and how we should pray. Now we want to move on and determine what else we can learn from these early churches as we worship and serve him in the modern generation. Today we'll consider how the early church was involved in evangelism and how the early church managed to stay united. Hopefully things we would want to know about. So first, an evangelising church. Antioch was an outward-looking church. It took evangelism very seriously. I'll be honest with you, just not that that's not normal, but for this particular point, in the past, I've always resisted talking about prayer in these meetings because I knew I wasn't very good at it, but we did it one of the previous times. 
And I thought it would be great to speak about evangelism, but then on studying it, I'm more in dread of talking about this than prayer, because I think it gives us a, a massive great, is that really what we should be doing? Before we get into the detail, I want to look at a few quotes on evangelism. And I warn you, some of them will really challenge all of us. And if they don't, then have a word afterwards and tell us how you managed to be so good at it. But this is some of the quotes I managed to get. There's a whole page, but I think I've dug out ten or something like. So from John Stott, we learn the meaning of evangelising. He says, to evangelise is to spread the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was raised from the dead according to the scriptures, and that as the reigning Lord, he now offers forgiveness of sins and a liberating spirit of the gift of the spirit to all who repent and believe. That's pretty simple. From Charles Spurgeon, who else would you expect to be in this list? To be a soul winner is the happiest thing in this world. And with every soul you bring to Jesus Christ, you seem to get a new heaven here on earth. Strikes me that every time we read the news, that's really what we should be praying. Because when we see the headlines, it's only through a world full of Christians that there will be a change, isn't it? It's not going to be the politicians who will do it. So from a Baptist back to an Anglican, John Stott again says, His authority on earth allows us to dare to go to all nations. His authority in heaven gives us our only hope of success. And his presence with us leaves us with no other choice. So from a Brit to an American, and it's not Alastair Begg, David Jeremiah tells us, If we understand what lies ahead of those who do not know Christ, there will be a sense of urgency in our witness. To assure us to get our priorities right, a man called Vance Havner, no idea who he is, encourages us, I know that some are always studying the meaning of the fourth toe of the right foot of some beast in prophecy and have never used either foot to go and bring men and women to Christ. I do not know who the 666 is in Revelation, but I do know that the world is sick, sick, sick. And the best way to speed the Lord's return is to win more souls for him. We've often said, haven't we, I don't know why the world's going on anymore. And then we realise it's because there are still souls to be saved. To those who think that evangelism has to be a church-led and expensive exercise, John MacArthur notes... I'm convinced, by the way, that friendships provide the most fertile soil for evangelism. When the reality of Christ is introduced into a relationship of love and trust that's already been established, the effect is powerful. And it seems that invariably, when someone becomes a true follower of Christ, that person's first impulse is to want to find a friend and introduce that friend to Christ as a good scriptural warrant there isn't there they even go and get their own brothers so it's backed up by ex-lawyer Lee Strobel who writes I've seen far too many Christians who are more than willing to travel halfway around the world to volunteer for a week in an orphanage but who cannot bring themselves to take the personal risk of sharing Jesus with the co-worker who sits day after day in the cubicle right next to them what a challenge, huh? To those who fear that maybe this is too expensive, Hudson Taylor promises, 
God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. And to those who think evangelism is only for the leadership of the church, John Mott, not John Stott, says it's possible for the most obscure person in a church with a heart right towards God to exercise as much power for the evangelization of the world as it is for those who stand in the most prominent positions. And the final and possibly most challenging quote comes back from our friend Mr Spurgeon. Every Christian is either a missionary or is an imposter. Well, that really does shake you, doesn't it? Well, although all the quotes are useful, of course they're not words from Scripture, they're just words of men, but they're very important nevertheless. I think all of those men, as far as we know, are, are good men who understood and the things they say are very relevant. But Jesus did much healing, and even in the healing, he was leading people to faith in himself and a declaration of the gospel. As an example, in Matthew 15, 24, when a Canaanite woman came to him to ask him to cast a demon out from her daughter, he replied that he'd come to bring the good news to the lost sheep of Israel. And invariably, when there was a healing, it was always, go away, do not sin, turn from your sin. So with the healing came evangelising. Likewise, he also taught the initial disciples that they should be able to heal. But his commission to them in Matthew 10:6 was that they should go to the lost sheep of Israel, i.e. they were to preach the gospel and lead them to Christ. Paul expands on the prime purpose of the Saviour in his letter to the Romans, chapter 15, 8 and 9. Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, the Jews, for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles, the rest of us, might glorify God for his mercy. And the more and more we come across life, I think the more and more we realise we need God's mercy. Yeah? So initially, Jesus brought his message of hope to the Jews, but he knew that the Gentiles would also benefit from his work of redemption on the cross. He taught this very clearly in John 10:16. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. We don't have to look far in this church to see that Jesus also means for us to reach out in the same way. In his final words on earth in Matthew 28, he gives the great commission, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We often think of evangelism and mission to be something we take off to far lands. We've sort of heard a little bit of that in one of those quotes. However, Acts 1.8, in his final words on earth, Jesus exhorts his disciples, you will be witness for me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So effectively, we're to evangelise in our own area, Belvedere, in areas close to us, maybe Bexley Heath, Thamesme, wherever there is a need, but also the places we don't want to go, Samaria. Jews didn't want to go to Samaria, Jesus went there and made a point of it. And abroad, 
we should be aware of evangelism overseas, but we should recognise the great need nearer to home. And it strikes me when we have mission meetings and we have them come and say, done this in India, and we never have anyone who comes and says to us, look what I've done in Bradford, in Leeds. And yet it's just as relevant, isn't it? Um, we're often telling our friends of Jesus, but as he himself tells us, he was sent to earth to preach good news to the poor. So in an age where there is so much distressing bad news, we've seen even more in the last day, haven't we? And it shook me a bit. I've said to Rosemary, it was a bit like watching that headline. It was a bit like seeing that Roy Clements had gone away from the truth. Um, we can evangelise, though, because we've got one of the few good bits of news that exist in the world. So although it's terrifying, it's something that people need. And it struck me when Barry was laying there in that bed and you thought, I've had all these years to talk to him, and it comes to the end, it's harder. So, yeah, it does make us think. Isn't it funny, though, sometimes we need a nudge. Jesus had indicated that the disciples were to evangelise beyond the Jewish race, but it took a major intervention by the Holy Spirit to ensure that the work that Jesus had tasked them with eventually was encompassing both Jews and Gentiles. I'll just remind you. First, the Holy Spirit used the martyrdom of Stephen. That's why we came to that passage. And the hatred of Saul for the Christians to stir up persecution in Jerusalem. As a result, the church was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Others were all scattered elsewhere, Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch. And that latter venture would lead to the church that we are studying now as a base for this series, the church at Antioch. And in Antioch, we note that they were an evangelising church. It says a great number believed and turned to the Lord in Acts 11.21. Not only did they evangelise locally, but in due course, they also sent out Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey in Acts 13. So firstly, then secondly, the Holy Spirit used a dream to come to Peter to convince him to visit a Gentile called Cornelius. As a result, in Acts chapter 10, 44 and 45, we read, whilst Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And aren't we glad? So then we come to the thorny subject of making visitors welcome in our services. It's like evangelism, isn't it? Some who don't come in, who, sorry, some who do come in don't want to be surrounded by people asking them who they are, where they've come from, what they're there for. Others are offended if people approaches them not at all. And it's difficult. So they need to be feel welcomed without feeling battered. In his autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi wrote that during his student days, he read the gospel seriously and considered becoming a Christian. I didn't know that. He believed that in the teachings of Jesus, he could find a solution to the caste system in India. And it was dividing the people, and we saw that the other day. It still is, isn't it? Uh, one Sunday, he decided to attend a church service nearby church 
talked to the minister about becoming a Christian. However, on entering the building, the usher refused him a seat and suggested that he worshipped with his own people. Gandhi left the church and never returned. He wrote, if Christians have caste differences too, I might just as well stay Hindu. It's a big warning to us, isn't it, how we relate to people. You'll know one of my favourite authors is Tony Merida. I suggested the book, we bought some, author of Love Your Church. He says, too many non-Christians have stories to tell of trying church and being made to feel unwelcome because of their appearance. And he says appearance could be race, hairstyle, dress, tattoos, etc. And it's true, isn't it? Tony points out that as Christians, it was when we were far off that we were brought near and only by the blood of Christ, Ephesians chapter 2. We should therefore understand how people feel when they step into the church for the first time or maybe step into a new church. So there's no doubt that the church service may be primarily for edifying and building up believers but it's also to bring the gospel to all and that certainly seems to be a thing where there's a lot of men nowadays who say oh, church services are for building up the church. And it's clear that it's also both purposes. There's no doubt that the church service should be that way but Tony summarises welcoming outsiders in these four or five ways. He said each person who's a Christian in the church should be part of the welcome. He says that you need to put yourself in someone else's shoes. He says make the service intelligible. He says this does not mean we water down our message. Visitors need to hear the whole gospel, including sin, judgment, repentance and so on. But they also need for it to be intelligible to them. We don't know who's coming and what their understanding is, what their background, what their culture is. He says we need to live out the gospel personally. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, it says, Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Or as Jesus said, let our light shine before others so that they may see it and glorify the Father. And then he says we need to be expressing joy in our worship. And I quote Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. So the variety of quotes go stretched just about everywhere. The greatest need of the hour, bear in mind he was writing it in the 70s, is a revived and joyful church. Unhappy Christians are a poor recommendation for the faith. The exuberant joy of the early Christians was one of the most potent factors in the massive spread of Christianity. So why should we evangelise? Firstly, because we've been commanded by the Saviour to go into all the world. Secondly, because God has chosen human beings, not angels, to do the evangelising. And he's given us a ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5. And thirdly, because we have received the blessing of being re reconciled to God through Christ ourselves and we should want others to experience it. Remember Andrew, for God brought him in. As soon as he was called, went first to meet his brother Peter saying, we found the Messiah, come and meet him yourself. 
We prayed regularly for unbelievers. Let's not be like the believers who prayed for the release of Peter and then were surprised when it happened. Let's expect unbelievers to come in. Let's make them welcome and show them the love of Christ. I'm sure there's stacks more that could be said about it, but it's enough for tonight. But what about a united church? When it was first founded, the church at Antioch was a united church. When the Holy Spirit called Paul and Barnabas to minister at Antioch, it still exhibited unity as evidenced by the fact that the Holy Spirit was at work there. And we've prayed several times recently, if there's anything that's wrong in this church, please let us know so that we're not stopping the call of a man to this church. We also see that when Paul and Barnabas returned from their first missionary journey, that they returned to a church at Antioch and it was gathered together. Their togetherness showed their unity. So is unity important? For Jesus himself, it was key. In John 17, 11, Jesus said, Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that we may be one, they may be one, as we are one. Well, if the unity of the Godhead is as we feel it is, then he's saying the church should be the same. One, our oneness has a gospel effect. We see in John 17, says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, you Father, are in me and I in you, that the world may believe that you sent me. If you read behind that, what it's effectively saying is, without a true unity in the local church, there is dark doubt cast on the word of God and the person of Christ and the gospel witness is harmed. Since Jesus urged unity in the church, it's not surprising that his apostles also pleaded for the same unity. Romans 12:16, Paul appeals to his readers to live in harmony with one another. He also prays for unity in Romans 15. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity amongst yourselves as you follow Jesus Christ. Seems to imply that unity comes not just easily, but as a result of determination on the one hand and a spirit of encouragement to look after one another on the other. Uni unity is something that really does have to be worked on. So practically, what can cause a lack of unity? There's about four things, I think. A desire of preeminence. A prime example of this in biblical days was the request from James and John to be seated either side of Jesus in glory. You can imagine the rift caused amongst the other ten disciples, can't you? If this was a mini church, these two want the preeminence, these ten, why do you want it? Why not us? It was pretty easy that it caused a rift. At least on one other occasion, the disciples wanted to know who would be the greatest in heaven. Not much of a spirit of humility there in that early church. But you'll remember Jesus' response. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The same can be true today amongst church members and even amongst church leaders, or maybe we should put it the other way around, amongst church leaders and even amongst church members. Personality culture, point two. This was evident in the Corinthian church. Who would have wanted to be a pastor of that church? I shouldn't think there'd be many hands stuck up. There were factions who followed Paul, Apollos, 
Cephas, but Paul pointed out that they needed to be united solely around Christ, being the head of the church, and he reminded them that they'd all been baptised to prove that they were part of that one true church. So, preeminence, personality cultures, arrogance. In Corinthians, Paul writes specifically about spiritual gifts and how some felt that their gifts were more glorifying than the gifts that others had. He uses a picture of the church as a body to prove that all the gifts are equally valid and indeed required for the body to function properly. And then there's a strange one. You have to bear with me on this. It's not easy to grasp, maybe. But Barnabas Piper, and I still don't quite know if he's related to the other Pipers, has written another book in the series of what the church is like. And he says that you need to be careful of a spirit of againstness. Now, I'm not sure if we looked it up in a dictionary, we'd find againstness, but I understand and I suspect you know what againstness is. It's a dangerous position that he mentions. He says we are united by finding common enemies. For example, political parties, theological camps, social movements. It seems like unity, but Barnabas points out that in fact we are not setting a course but having a course dictated to us and he says we're also constantly looking for enemies we're predisposed to suspicion and rejection we find that the unity that you think you've got is shallow and short-lived what happens when the threat dissipates or the culture changes so true biblical unity is not negative but positive it's based solely on the centrality of Christ and his teachings. It seems, though, this has come up over the last few months, I think, probably coming out of uh, various colleges. There seems to be uh, a lot of people looking at the one another's of Scripture. It's a modern trend that seems to have popped up. The phrase one another appears a hundred times in the New Testament. So it's very important, relevant. 59 of these are defining how we should relate to one another. None of these are negative, but all relate to how we can build each other up. I've got a list of them if you'd like to look up the biblical references, but I didn't think we should go through them all because there are 59 of them. But I can prove them to you if you want. But just a few. Be at peace with one another. Honour one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Why would he want to accept us? Why would we want to accept one another? Be patient, bearing with one another in love and encourage one another. There's nothing there that talks about let's be set against this person and that person. And It's all about positives. If we could truly put these into practice, we'd surely have a united church. Barnabas Piper finally says that every attempt at unity sends around something. He says a football team, I'm not sure whether he meant an American football team, the love for a political candidate, a passion for a cause. All of these things can crumble because of the weakness of the object of the unity. We need to focus our attention on Christ and him alone since he created all, has gained the victory over all, we need to know the mind of Christ and to be willing to be moulded by it. 
So just to summarise, my last bit for the last three has been, how do we do? So, summary. Evangelism is at the heart of Christian work. Evangelism is not just for the leadership. Evangelism does not have to be flashy or expensive. It can just be talking to a neighbour or a friend. We fear evangelism because it's hard, but it's good news in a bad news world. We have the full backing of the Holy Spirit in evangelism. We need to make our worship services places where outsiders feel welcomed without diminishing the preaching of the word. Unity is not easy, but it is essential. This unity will be a disincentive for the world to believe. Unity is to be based around Christ only and not our human personalities, preeminences, arrogances, our hatred for something else. Unity comes through positivity, not negativity. And I say as a final thing, in all of our meetings, may Christ be lifted up.